You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor-formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Chronic stress wreaks havoc on blood sugar, which can cause your body to store excess fat. Stress can also slow your metabolism, which fuels weight gain. And you know all about stress eating and sugar cravings, right? Now the good news. The studied ingredients in Lean have been shown to help maintain healthy blood sugar levels, help optimize metabolism, and keep your appetite under control. Now, if your life is a bit stressful like mine and you want to lose weight, add Lean to your healthy diet and exercise lifestyle. Now get 15% off and free shipping at takelean.com. That's takelean.com and enter the promo code justnews15. That's the promo code justnews15 at takelean.com. One more time, takelean.com. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a healthcare provider. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the Friday edition. And guess what? This weekend, you're going to get an extra edition of the John Solomon Reports podcast. Yep, I'm not lying. We're going to give you uh, a playback of a very special event we did here at Just the News at Real America's Voice, uh, an election integrity special. We had some amazing people on it, including Senator Ron Johnson, the Brown County elections clerk. You do want to hear her story. Sandy Juno, if you've not heard her story, you will go numb uh, about what happened uh, as a result of the Mark Zuckerberg money in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, it's a, a great 50-minute special worth listening while you're mowing the lawn or uh, going for the walk on a beautiful Saturday in summer. Uh, so we'll have a Saturday edition. Today, we're going to do two things. We're going to scratch a little bit at election integrity here. We've got a great guest. Uh, Jacqueline Timmer is here. She runs the American Voters Alliance, and she's been doing a lot of the spade work, the groundwork, the FOIA gathering, the fact gathering, the witness testimony in states where irregularities occurred, like Mark Zuckerberg's money sidelining career election officials, like the things were turned up in Georgia recently, in Michigan, all the places we've gone. Jacqueline's going to give us a quick update on all the developments, all the fact developments. These are facts, not suppositions, not guesses, not theories all the facts uh, that that she and her team have dug up. And in many cases, we at Just the News have confirmed those facts and been able to write very important stuff. It's important work because, you know, it's more than just the 2020 election that's at stake. The future of voting, how we count votes, how we assure the voters that their vote matters. That's why you should turn up because there's no shenanigans. Uh, important stuff. And we're so glad to have people out there turning that up and making it possible for us. All right. And then we're going to do something very special. We have a great partner. They have a great seafood product. I want you to close your eyes and pretend for a second you're on the shoreline in Alaska. You hear the waves crashing. You're getting hungry for seafood. Yep. We're going to tell you the story of one of America's great seafood companies out in Alaska. They're a partner of Just the News. We've got their founder here. An amazing family story. You can be sustainable and profitable. You can be good, high-quality seafood and ship it across the internet. Uh, we are so grateful, and we're just gonna we're just gonna take you out to Alaska and show you how high-quality fishing is really done and why good seafood matters when it arrives at your front door. That's what we got on tap for you today. We're going to do a quick commercial break like we always do at this point. When we come back, first up, Jacqueline Klein from, I'm sorry, Jacqueline Klein Timmer from the American Voters Alliance. You're going to love this segment. A uh, great update on all things election integrity. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time 
IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, somebody who has been on the front lines of the election integrity debate in America and really turning up incredibly valuable stuff. If you watched our TV special the other night on Real America's Voice and on Just the News, you saw a woman by the name of Sandy Juno. In fact, I think people are still talking about her a few days later. She was the Brown County, uh, Wisconsin election clerk. City of Green Bay is in Brown County, important city. And she told the story of how Mark Zuckerberg's money uh, basically sidelined career election officials and put a partisan who wasn't even familiar with Wisconsin law because he was from Brooklyn, not, not Brooklyn, Wisconsin, Brooklyn, New York. Um, and uh, and he ran the election, and she believes that he ran it in contravention of some of Wisconsin's rules, regulations, and laws. Well, that person and her story was made possible by our next guest, Jacqueline Klein, who is the head of the American uh, Voters Alliance and doing a lot of the spade work to get us facts and truth, not spin, not speculation, not, um, uh, you know, guesses. She's digging in with FOIAs and witnesses and finding out what's been going on in some of these major urban areas of America where there's still questions about the um, outcome of the election and how it was conducted. So let me, without further ado, welcome Jacqueline to the show. Jacqueline, great to have you on the show. John, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. And I do have one little addendum to your introduction. Please. Klein is actually my maiden name. Ah. I'm Jacqueline Timmer. So ah, uh, you're I'm right. It's, and, it's Jacqueline Timmer. I, I should know that by now because I've known your dad for a long time. So and he's been a great guest on this show as well. So sorry about that, Jacqueline. That's great. Not a problem. He's a good man to be affiliated with. He is. In certain circles. Yeah, there you go. There you go. No, he is a wonderful man, and uh, he's been a great guest of the show and a uh, frequent uh, contributor to things that we're, we try to do at, at uh, Just the News, and you do as amazing work. We, we love what you do, and um, we're so uh, so proud that we can get the facts. You know, It's great to have a debate, but it's really better when you can have facts because everybody can agree what the facts are, and then they can come to their conclusion, and you've been digging out the facts. So let's start with the Wisconsin uh, part of your work because – Milwaukee, Madison, Racine, Green Bay, all major cities. I used to work in Wisconsin, uh, all blue areas, often surrounded by a red county. And there seems to be this same pattern of Zuckerberg money coming in and then someone else uh, or a different agenda coming in, which is get out the vote in Democratic areas. Is that what you've uh, uncovered with the facts that you've uh, you found in these FOIAs and, and witnesses? Absolutely. And really, it's something that we're seeing nationwide. But specifically in Wisconsin, you know, Wisconsin was the first state that the CTCL approached. Um, and the CTCL being the Center for Tech and Civic Life, which is the organization that Zuckerberg, of course, funneled those funds through right. in order to push this left agenda. Um, so with that, Wisconsin being the very first state that was approached, they first went to Racine. Racine recruited the other four cities, making the Wisconsin five. And then the monies came in. And what we see being done with those monies are things that are typically done and should be done simply by campaigns and by private groups apart from government. And so, of course, you know, my dad, Phil, has talked about this, but the concerns of that data sharing back and forth of private sensitive voter information and that being used for a turnout the vote effort with geofencing, with ballot harvesting, and things that are done contrary to Wisconsin law and then, of course, there was the clawback clause from the CTCL that, that made those city municipalities beholden to the CTCL grant rather than the Wisconsin Elections Commission. Wow. It's really remarkable. I mean, we literally privatized to partisans the job of what is supposed to be independent uh, election referees. And uh, I, I was struck by the words that Sandy Juno used. I, I think her parting words were, if we allow this to happen again— we'll never again have election integrity. That is such a powerful statement from someone who ran 23 years of elections as a, as a pro, as someone who, who knew how to run an election. When you look back now, is this model that you've now fully documented in Wisconsin, are we seeing it in other places? It seems like it's hinted at in Georgia. We, we saw Georgia get money like that. We saw Detroit get big money, like 7.4 million. 
and um, we saw uh, Philadelphia get money. Is this a pattern that is now uh, coming across the country into these big urban areas? It's absolutely a pattern. And to play off Sandy Juno's statement, I 100% agree with her. Um, I think there's so much value in citizens standing up to this, presenting the FOIA request and asking the hard questions. But what's happened through this is a fundamental restructuring of our election system to a centralized government. It's moving away from a constitutional republic, and it's being ran, as you said, by private organizations. And so what we're seeing with that, of course, in Wisconsin, we have data sharing. So you mentioned um, the gentleman from Brooklyn who was in the counting center and had the keys. That was 100% true. But he also had access to private voter roll information so that he could track which ballots were coming in and from which wards and then be able to respond to that with geofencing campaigns to turn out the vote. That type of information, that sensitive information has not been shared in that way before. And it was shared with Democrat operatives who are closely tied with the Obama administration. We also see that in Philadelphia where literally <laughs> Governor Wolf's campaign has access to the front end of the voter roll to add new voters. Over 80 leftist organizations have that direct access to the poll books. Wow. And then in Georgia as well, we're seeing a lot of, you know, private data sharing agreements. Um, I'll hop back up to Michigan for a minute and then I'll wrap up this point. Governor Whitmer in Michigan, she is the prime example for so much of what is taking place with executive overreach, as we all know. But one of the things that um, she has done recently that has been discovered in her office is she made an agreement, or rather her office, I can't claim her directly, but her office was working to make an agreement with MGP Van. MGP Van is a strong leftist data aggregator that does a lot of fundraising for the far left. And what they were doing is they were making the COVID record and COVID tracing, um, the COVID tracing App contract. application, right? Yeah. Exactly. Sorry, I'm getting a little lost here, but yeah. the COVID tracing agreement directly with MGP Van. But what they did is they made a subsidiary of MGP Van called Michigan Van in order that that organization would have access to all the private information of Michigan citizens from whereabouts to medical records. So we're seeing these data sharing with far left organizations and government entities, and it's being done in the election system. It's being done around COVID. It's really being done from this executive overreach perspective. Remarkable, really, really remarkable. Um, as you look out at the horizon, we know some things, but there's a lot of things we still need to know. Like, for instance, we just learned last week that, that Secretary of State Raffenberger in uh, Georgia had a 29-page memo that laid out all of these uh, very serious problems in Atlanta, double counting of ballots, uh, untrained workers, workers claiming they were there not to count votes, but to create chaos or mess things up. They use a little bit more colorful language than that, but to get the idea. Um, and you've got uh, ballots being transported in insecure uh, carriages, not in the, the locked boxes they're supposed to be in. You've got um, uh, really serious questions about chain of custody. I think the word uh, the state uh, contractor uses, massive chain of uh, custody violation. Uh, and uh, concerns that voter privacy was pierced, that people could literally see the names of who was voting for Trump and Biden, uh, the way the ballots were left on the table or left exposed. Um, we just learned that seven months after or six months after uh, Secretary of State Raffenberger said we had a perfect election in Georgia. When you look back now, what don't we know? What are, are the big questions that you and the American Voters Alliance are trying to dig in to get us more answers? You know, that's a fantastic question. I think as I look at it, one of the big questions is where some of these people are connecting, where some of these organizations connect. And we are finding connections between different organizations where, um, you know, a person will sit on the board over here and operate in a specific role over there. And what I'm referring to with that is, you know, we have the Center for Tech and Civic Life. We have CEIR. We have the elections group, which is both in Georgia as well as documented and being interactive in the election in Wisconsin. We have these different organizations that are more or less functioning as a single machine. Sure. And it's everything from graphic design of the ballot design itself all the way to ballot harvesting as well as administering the election and cutting out the clerks as we see in Wisconsin. So. They're bringing these groups as one entity 
that are all flowing in unanimity, but they operate in different functions of the election process. And so understanding the relationships between those groups, where that originated, and we are tracking some of that. And this goes back, you know, 10 plus years. Of course. This is not That's, that's the key. New. It does go back it's 10 plus years. It's been catalyzed by COVID. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. It's, uh, it's irrefutable. It's a remarkable thing. Um, as we dig further into the learnings of this, and, uh, you know, there have been some early laws, right? We've got the Georgia reform law. Uh, uh, Arizona's doing it piecemeal, but they're getting individual things in. You've got Texas at the governor's calling back uh, legislators, and this time they're going to pass it. He said they're not leaving Dodge until they get their election reform done. <laughs> Uh, do you feel good that legislators for the first time who might've been a little bit asleep at the switch, not realizing that they had the power to put a stop to things during the 2020 election, do you feel heartened or are you worried that legislators aren't doing enough to uh, address the sort of vulnerabilities and uh, under the table rule changes that occurred without uh, legislators signing off on them? A couple thoughts on that. First is we had decent election laws to begin with. A huge part of the problem is that the laws were flagrantly violated. That's right. And and that's important to distinguish from fraud. Um, you know, whether or not a person believes fraud occurred, fraud is something that's proven over time. Right. But we have definitive proof that this was a lawless election. And then that begs the question, well, why? Why were these laws flagrantly violated? Yeah. So, so with that, we had laws in place that were flagrantly violated. Creating more law isn't necessarily the solution but it can be valuable in clarifying the language because accompanying this crazy shift in the election process, we also have a shift in language. And one of the things that we've been coming up against is how do we interpret the law according to its original intent rather than just breaking down the language into these isolated words. For example, a Dropbox is, Dropbox is not the same as a clerk. That's right. And yet there's a debate taking place about whether that is the case or if a poll watcher is in the building and they're there to observe the ballots, you know, they're, my dad uses the example of the Republicans are put in the cheap seats. They're not able to see what's going on. And, and the argument is, well, they were in the place. Well, Earth is a place. You know, Michigan is a place. So we have this breakdown of language that's occurring simultaneously. So I believe that, you know, adding legislation can create value in clarifying that language. As far as whether... I feel heartened by where legislators are at. I think they're across the board. I think they're all across the spectrum. Yeah, that's but true, isn't it? what we need is an understanding of jurisdiction and what, what the legislative role is ultimately in the election process when it comes to the Constitution. Yeah. That they're the ones who certify, that they're the ones who need to administer these funds if private funds are going to be used, that it's not a private, a private matter. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Uh, Michigan, we've talked about Michigan, and this week the Michigan Senate issued a report and, and you know came to the conclusion that they've said before, which is there wasn't systemic fraud detected yet that uh, would have changed the outcome of the election, but they raised a very serious concern. They said it flatly, unequivocally, that mailing absentee ballot applications to people who don't request them, to just blasting them out is ripe for fraud, and it's a type of fraud that may never be detected. And I wanted to see if you could address it. Do you think that, you know, obviously it sounds like these Democratic-run states want to uh, mass ballot applications again. I'm going to mail them again. And, and Republican states are starting to question that if that was a really good idea during COVID. Do you think we'll get some clarity in the states on that issue? On the mass mail-in ballot or the mass yes. ballot? Yes. I think it's an easy issue to address as opposed yeah, to private sure. funding. So it's, it's very clear, it's very in the face, and I do think that states are beginning to move on that issue. I mean, obviously, wherever you create chaos, it's easier to commit fraud. Yeah. And so eliminating that chaos as much as possible is absolutely necessary. I'm glad they addressed that. Um, however, again, their burden of proof is in the wrong place because they're saying there's no proof of systemic fraud when there is proof of lawlessness. And the lawlessness needs to be addressed in order to protect the integrity of the election system as a whole. Yeah, that's such a great point. I mean, you read those 29 pages of notes in Georgia, you used the word that came to my mind, chaos. There was such chaos in the Atlanta Voting Center that if someone wanted to do something nefarious, they easily could have done so. In fact, there's a moment in the notes where somebody just walks out with a suitcase full of sensitive- I remember that. Yeah, and, and no one knows who it is. No one knows where it went, and no one ever saw it come back, and you go- well, that's, that's kind of scary. And so 
I, I think there's been an interesting effort by Democrats to pigeonhole this debate that if there's no fraud, there's no problem. And the fact of the matter is Fulton County, Detroit, uh, many other places, we now know there were systemic dysfunction, for sure, untrained workers, bad practices, uh, sloppy, uh, and sometimes uh, unlawful uh, changing of ballots. Uh, this curing thing that people just made up that that a, a third party can decide what your intent was and fix your ballot if you filed it wrong. All of that happened, and it seems like uh, we the, that the focus on that, which is irrefutable, needs to be much sharper for for all of us to understand that bad things happen in this election, whether we prove fraud at this point or not. And um, it it is really really remarkable. Tell us a little bit more about what American Voters Alliance is doing on a daily basis. I, I know a lot about it, but tell our listeners a little bit about what you you've been able to accomplish. Yeah, so American Voters Alliance is kind of the five hundred one c four arm of the Amistad Project 501c3 effort. And so what we are working to do is we're working to develop a grassroots community. So uh, we have our guy on the ground, Tim Griffin, he's been working back and forth between Amistad as well as AVA, and he's been helping to form groups in these various states that are doing the grassroots side of FOIA requests, creating accountability, cleaning voter rolls, and really looking at these issues. Because without citizens asking the right questions, the government officials are not held accountable. And at the end of the day, election law really is common sense. There's a reason that you have a witness. There's a reason that you have voter ID. It's it's common sense stuff. And so being able to hold that accountable on the ground is really what we're working to do. From a larger kind of like take a step back perspective, we're really working to become a premier resource online with these types of issues. So right now what we're building out is a new website with a member portal where you can go in, you can look at your state, you can get real-time updates on your state, and then you can also find local groups, people to get connected with. There's a social media component that we're building out, and then a database component where you can look at your state law, you can track um, new legislation, and you can see our commentary on it and how the Amistad Project looks at that law, whether it's addressing the issues that we saw in the 2020 election. So that's something that we're building out right now. And then, of course, the long-term goal, being able to create more groups and support those groups as they're forming in their own state. The, the state groups are independent. We let them function independently. They're not a chapter or a, you know, a subsidiary, so to speak. Right. But we do want to support locals as much as possible because it's the Sandy Junos and the Ron Hoyers that are the ones who are really getting this stuff done and pulling it out in the open. Yeah, so important. And Jacqueline, how do people uh, stay in touch with your work? How can they follow what you're doing on a daily basis, follow what the American Voters Alliance is doing? Visit our website. So we have, we just rebranded, so we have a new URL, new website. So it's not popping up in the search engines yet, but you can go directly to AmericanVotersAlliance.org. Sign up, pre-register to become a member. We're going to be launching our membership portal here in about a month. So we'll have those resources available here shortly. Boy, what a great, what a great, what a great resource. What a great opportunity and resource. Uh, Jacqueline, we can't thank you enough for what you've done in this story. I mean, uh, we, we, uh, once everybody hears what happened in Wisconsin, their jaw drops like, no, that's not possible. Then you show them the documents like, wow, it is possible. It did happen. And we would not have had that information were it not for your great work and the great work of your dad, Phil Klein. And so we want to thank you for getting us facts because facts matter. And uh, you've been a tremendous fact gatherer and we're so um, so grateful for the work you've done. An honor to be here. Thanks so much for having me. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, I'm taking you to Alaska. Really, it's the middle of summer. Why don't we think about someplace cool? When I come back, I'll explain exactly what we're talking about in Alaska right after this commercial break. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest with a great story of entrepreneurship, family business. This is one of those stories that inspire you uh, when you're an American. And joining me right now is Aaron Kallenberg, 
from the great company, Wild Alaskan Company. You've heard me talk about them lots. They're one of our great partners on this show. But beyond their their product and the opportunities they give us as, as listeners and readers, they have a fantastic family business story. And I just, sometimes I love when I fall in love with a, a business story just to share it with you all. And so Aaron, I want to welcome you to the show. Happy day. Happy to be here. It is indeed for us too. We're so fortunate. So I love your story because you start in big tech and you end up in this amazing sustainable fish uh, business that, that uh, our, our audience loves. Just tell me a little bit about your family history and your own career as, a, as you made that transition. Yeah, no problem. You know, the Wild Alaskan Company is a monthly seafood membership service. And the story of how we got to a place where we essentially can ship a curated box of wild caught sustainable seafood to members all across the country, um, you know, once a month or as often as uh, folks would like to receive it. It's a story that I call it a three generation overnight success. And it really starts with my grandfather, um, Robert C. Kallenberg, who was born in Manhattan, of all places. And when he was um, 23 years old at the age of uh, that in the year 1926, uh, said, I'm moving to Alaska, um, <laughs> basically from New York City. And um, so he went up to Alaska in the 20s, um, and he fell in love with fishing. Um, and so he started fishing on a wooden sailboat, um, you know, and this is back in the 20s. Sure. Really hard, long work. Um, and at that time, Alaska wasn't even a state. You know, it was a territory, um, you know, uh, of the U.S. government. It wasn't a state. Um, and, you know, he was also an academic, uh, you know, so he looked at the fisheries and the sustainability aspect super early, um, you know, in sort of the evolution of Alaska's fisheries. And what he decided to do was actually go back to the East Coast, to Cornell University, and he wrote a master's thesis on the conservation of Alaskan salmon, specifically focused on the fishery that he was um, fishing in. And he brought that thesis back up to Alaska as sort of a curriculum. In the winters, he was actually teaching school in Alaska in a rural community, and he wanted a curriculum to teach conservation of the fisheries. Um, and then from there, you know, Alaska became a state. And when it became a state, um, they put into their constitution a constitutional mandate uh, for sustainable management of the fisheries. And this is something that's really unique about Alaska. Um, prior to statehood, that happened actually in 1959, my grandfather was, you know, still fishing, but also served as the uh, chairman of the Territorial Board of Fisheries. Uh, you know, so he sort of was a fisherman out on the water, but also this academic and working, you know, in, in the governance side, you know, to move the sustainability mandate along with many other people in the state. So, you know, my father was born in 1949, actually 10 years before Alaska became a state and before that mandate was put. So he right. grew up fishing with my grandfather and I grew up fishing with my fa father. So the three generations of commercial fishermen, but the family conversations around the dinner table and in the galley of the boat were always focused on how do we as, um, as a state uh, maintain this beautiful resource, make it sustainable, because really, if you take care of the fish, they will take care of you. If you overfish the fish, then there's no more fish for anyone to eat. So, so th that was the world that I was brought up in. I was also the nerdy kid that took his laptop <laughs> out. To, right. Out to, yeah, out to sea. You know, you know, so I love computers. Um, I grew up in a commercial fishing family. So, you know, my dad's like, all right son, it's time to go fishing, you know, you reach a certain age, and I, can I bring my computer? And I actually was able to rig up an internet connection in Bristol Bay, Alaska, which is adjacent to the Bering Sea. In the mid-90s, when I was a teenager, I actually had an internet connection. It was super slow, required a lot of, um, you know, equipment to make it work. Uh, and mind you, it's still difficult to get internet out there. I bet it today. is, yeah. And I pursued a career for essentially two decades out of high school, you know, and out of college in the tech industry. And I actually moved to New York City back to where my grandfather was born. I was living in Brooklyn. And long story short, um, uh, my sister and my father came to, to visit me 
And I, you know, I, I wanted to take them out to a fancy seafood restaurant in Manhattan. And so I found the most expensive one that I could afford at the time. And uh, we sit down, you know, and I told my dad and my sister, everything's on me, you know, that you guys are here to visit. And um, my dad looked at the menu and he says, well, I have to have the fresh Copper River King salmon. <laughs> of course. Said, yeah. You know, and, and, and he said, I don't have any idea how they got it two, two months ahead of the first opener. You know, so the I, basically here we are in what's supposed to be the creme de la creme of New York City seafood. And it's just absolutely fake fish. You know, it, it's not what it's purporting to be. Yeah. And, you know, I had already, we'd already ordered appetizers and I, you know, I had the, uh, you know, in addition to my, you know, my dad poking fun at, 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 at me a little bit, you know, I had to fork over the money for the bill. And really I started to discover that as we now know in major metropolitan areas, up to 40% of uh, wild, quote unquote, wild seafood is actually um, fraudulently mislabeled. Um, some of it's intentional, you know, some of it people just don't know any better. And I started to really dig into it. And, and I realized, you know, that Alaska has, you know, it's, it's America's backyard and it, it produces enough sustainably managed wild fish. So this is fully sustainable, wild, healthy seafood to feed the entire country. Yet what are Americans eating? They're eating imported fish you know, um, from, you know, sources that are not necessarily sustainable, sources that, you know, might have questionable labor practices, um, less healthy for you. And where's most of Alaska's fish going? It's going overseas. So Alaska is exporting a majority of its fish, where Americans are importing a majority of the fish that they consume. That makes no sense to me. Yeah, right. Um, Counterintuitive. And it was, you know, so I started to think, how could we shift this? How could we build a direct-to-consumer model using what I know about the tech industry, e-commerce, online advertising. And it was still a few years before I, I, I gained the, uh, the courage, you know, to start the Wild Alaskan Company. Finally, I turned to my wife, you know, and I was working in the tech industry in New York City, um, nice, stable job. And I said, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to sell seafood on the internet. And she kind of cocked her head sideways and looked at me and said okay <laughs> you know and yeah. Big change. Was off. yeah and and so we were off you know in the early days you, you know we had one fulfillment center um you know in the middle of the country so we brought the fish down via freight you know it was processed um you know caught in alaska brought down um you know to the what we say the lower 48 and wild alaskan has since grown to eight fulfillment centers, seven frozen fulfillment centers, one dry goods facility. So what we're doing is we're bringing this healthy, sustainable Alaskan seafood from America's own backyard um, directly to the major metropolitan areas around the country, right? So it's it, it, so that we can ship it to your doorstep within one or, or, or two days on dry ice. You receive it. It's all frozen at the peak of freshness, individually portioned, um, comes in a box great for a fam, uh, you know, family of four, or we have, you know, a smaller pack that works great for couples, um, pull it out of the box, put it in your freezer, and then you pull out these individually portioned, easy meal prep pieces, um, uh, de de uh, thaw them out, and, it, and um, you know, you, you, you've got a great healthy seafood dinner anywhere that you live in the country now. That's amazing. What a, what a great idea. And, you know, what's, what I, so interesting to me, you know, there are lots of places where people have a business, have a relationship, but you've turned this into a club. It's a family. You're getting recipes, you're getting advice, you're, you're getting a week, a monthly surprise, which I love. Um, talk about how you went about creating not just a business, but an entire community. Yeah. I mean, you know, the community aspect is, is so important and, when, and that's a really important point. We don't, we don't, nobody is a customer at Wild Alaska and they're all yeah. members. Um, and the membership comes with that connection, not only to the Kallenberg family. Uh, my wife actually sends a weekly newsletter to all of our members, and she calls it her love letter, you know, to the members. And my God, we get responses back every week. We love talking to the members, uh, but we also have a great recipe curation program. We have a really active blog. Um, uh, you know, we have a phenomenal 
staff that goes through what we call fish school, which is a, a, a multi-week training program that teaches them about the history of Alaska seafood, um, you know, harvest methods, sustainability, and cooking techniques. How cool is so that? that? You know, via our 1-800 number, our um, live chat on our website um, or mobile device um, and email, you can reach out. And we really are your personal fishmonger. You know, that, right. that's the idea is America no longer really has that corner fish market. You know, that was all no. replaced with the industrial food system. You know, what happened was you used to have the local catch. Um, you know, you knew your fishmonger. And then with the industrialization of the seafood industry, uh, essentially we started importing all of our fish from a majority of it, 90 plus percent of it from foreign countries. Yeah. And we lost that relationship to the personal fishmonger. We lost that connection to the sea. And it, it became, you know, imported fish at a fish counter in the back of a big box store. Yeah, right? exactly. So we're we're reintroducing the idea of the personal fishmonger. You know, we don't sell anything other than wild-caught sustainable seafood. And we do that with that high touch point. We want to teach you how to cook it. You know, we want to teach you how to thaw it. We want to give you new recipes. And we want you to see our lifestyle. We want you to hear from the family, you know, get the pictures of me and my wife and my son, you know, out on the beach in Alaska, et cetera. And it really is, um, you know, I, I, you know, joke that we're kind of like a, your local radio station, except for fish, you know, or yeah. like your favorite, your favorite radio show. Um, but, you know, the, the, the seafood version of that, right, because it it's... is so much more than just a product. I think uh, that's that's really the thing that struck me about it as I've become a member and joined. It's just there is a a sense of community and a sense of purpose, and it isn't just a transaction, you know, buying something. And you know, I remember the days when you could go out to the wharf in San Francisco and buy the fresh food, and and um, it's just you know, it's it, it has a romanticism of going back to there, but it's also modern and easy. I hate I hate going to the grocery store. I can't stand the grocery store, and it's just so nice to have the fish at your tour, and you put it in your freezer, and you're on your grill in the afternoon, and uh, you've created something that has like all the coolness and hipness of Amazon, but that romanticism of that moment when you knew the guy at the wharf who was cutting your fresh fish for you and. Um, it really is a remarkable experience. I'll say that it's it's really something. Um, well, thank you very much. Yeah, you... and, and just a note, you know, when you talk about uh, the purpose, and this is something a lot of people don't know, but Wild Alaskan is actually a public uh, benefit um, corporation, and we made the uh, conscious decision to convert the corporation um, to a public benefit corporation, um, and our with our explicit mission of accelerating humanity's transition to sustainable food systems. So we've, you know, we've written this into our charter, similarly to the way that Alaska, yeah, ex exactly, similar to the ways that Alaska wrote sustainability into its constitution, we wrote our public benefit purpose into our corporate charter, and this this is a lot more than you know, then the, the surface level, I mean, our team lives and breathes this, our family lives and breathes this, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's our entire life and our livelihood. And we're so sure. happy and grateful to be able to share it with the country. Yeah. It's uh, you, I can remember the days when the local hardware store owner was also, you know, the guy donating money through the Kiwanis club and things, and they were giving back to the community. And you've, you've recreated that in a 21st century way that I think is, is extraordinarily um, amazing. And, and I think people, as they learn it, they get more and more, fall more and more in love with the bigger mission that you, you've created. We've touched on this a little bit, but I want to go back to what makes Alaskan fishing industry really the gold standard of sustainability. There was a period of time where people didn't care about sustainability, except in Alaska, where it's always been that. But you, the, your industry there, your company particularly, uh, sustainability is really at the heart of the DNA of, of the Alaskan experience. How did that happen? You know, Alaska, um, back in my, um, you know, grandfather's time, you know, under federal management, when it was a um, territory, territory not right. a state, you know, the, the fish the populations were starting to decline. And that was part of, uh, you know, what was alarming to my grandfather, part of the reason that he wrote his thesis. You know, again, he's a school teacher in the winter. He's a fisherman in the in, in the summer salmon season. And he said, we need to build a curriculum, wrote his master's thesis on that, again, served on that territorial board of fisheries um, and that was all prior to statehood a lot of people don't know this but one of the major reasons that alaska became a state was so that it could gain control of the fisheries 
um, directly, and that's why they wrote in the sustainability mandate to the the Constitution, Constitution. right? Yeah. And that came with subsequent enforcement, um, uh, you know, agencies, Alaska Department of Fish and Game, Board of Fisheries, you know, being formalized, et cetera, um, along with a culture that really understood that, again, if we need to take care of the fish in order for the fish to take care of us, economically speaking, right? You can either spiral upwards with fisheries or downwards. You look at certain fisheries, they don't have uh, strong funding, right? You don't tax the fisheries, um, you know, and then reinvest the money into the enforcement of sustainability. There's less and less fish every year. What Alaska did was they set a very strong precedent. Um, we're We're gonna make this a constitutional mandate and we're gonna reinvest in the enforcement and the sustainable management of those fisheries. And so the fishery started to rebound, and now we have what's you know considered the global gold standard for sustainable fisheries management. The proof is in the pudding with the numbers and the economic value that it's generated for the state. It's the second largest industry after the oil industry in Alaska. Yeah. Over five billion pounds of sustainably harvested seafood come out of Alaska's oceans every year, and that's sustainable. I really want to emphasize that those fish stocks are. Um, renewable um they're not taking more than um to reproduce right yeah and this isn't a greenwash term this is a legal definition uh in the constitution with very strong enforcement in alaska and it proves that you can have a relationship with mother nature if you act responsibly and frankly a lot of other fisheries around the world don't do this, and they're paying the consequences. You can Absolutely. look at fishery, uh, fishery. So it's important as consumers um, that you, if you are going to eat seafood, you want it to be healthy, you want it to be sustainable, you want to encourage this upward spiral, not this downward spiral, and look for fisheries such as Alaska's fisheries that really do encourage that. Um, I don't know of another state or country that has actually enshrined these principles at such a legal level. Again, not it's very easy to say this is sustainable, you know, build a consumer group, you know, put a rubber stamp on a piece of fish and say, this is sustainable. It's a lot harder to do what Alaska has done because the proof again is in the pudding. You can pull up the numbers, speak for themselves. You can look at the graph after statehood, you saw those fish stocks um, rebound and they've been able to sustain in a way that again, um, you know, is feeding a large swath of the, um, the world. And, you know, the shame is, why aren't Americans eating this fish? You know, they don't know any better, and right. we're trying to change that. Yeah, well, you're, you're doing a great uh, part to get that narrative to people, and so they understand uh, the, the, the bigger mission as well as the great product and the great community you've created. Uh, you know, some of the fishing industry is now romanticized on television. We have these shows, the greatest catch, things like that. But what do you think is one of the most common misconceptions about the industry at large, and even specifically what goes on in Alaska? I mean, you know, I've been in it for so long, you know, sometimes it's hard to, uh, common misconceptions. Um, I I think that probably that all fisheries are created equal, you know, that's a big one. And we just sort of touched on that. You know, you can't talk about uh, commercial fishing without talking about uh, the species, the harvest method, um, and the location. Again, you know, is it in Alaska? It's much different than, you know, another part of the world. You know, I think another big conception is, you know, uh, most people that commercial fish, um, in my experience, in Alaska in particular, and again, I don't speak on behalf of the rest of the world, but they are in it. They're in it as a multi-generation, fishermen and women that run the boats, you know, they're often being passed down generation to generation. They're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because that is their life. That is where their heart is. And they care about the fish. You know, they care about the sustainability up in Alaska. They don't know anything different. You know, my dad, when I was growing up, he always used to say, if we really wanted to go make money, we'd be in real estate or the stock market. This is a <laughs> lifestyle. This is a lifestyle that literally people put their lives on the line to do because they love it and they care about the fish and they care about the relationship with the food system. And you find that kind of culture in Alaska in particular. And I, I, I think that Again, the romanticization of, you know, the hard work and all that that's there, but really the motivation, you can feel it when you're, when you're up here, you know, interacting with the community. I was blessed. I had an uncle that in the seventies just moved out of the rat race of New York city and just plunked himself into Alaska, started a little community himself, a sawmill and 
And uh, there is a ethos in Alaska, unlike anything else in the world. And the connection between nature and and land and 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 people is so strong. And you 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 can see it in a movie, you can read it in a book, but when you get unseen in Alaska, it becomes so real. And all of a sudden, you understand. You have to experience it to fully understand it. And um, I think you guys have that, you know, right at the core of your DNA of your company, which is amazing. Um, I always like to ask this question, which is, you know, because all of us, at some point in our mind, uh, I think we're going to be an entrepreneur. We could have been an entrepreneur. We might be one in the future. Uh, wh what is uh, what is your favorite lesson learned? You know, what was the biggest lesson you learned? Uh, biggest challenge maybe when you were there? And also your 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 most unexpected success, you know? So what was your hardest thing? What was your surprise success as you, as you were going about being the, an entrepreneur with this great company? Yeah, that's a great question. Um you know, I was terrified to start the Wild Alaskan Company. Um, and, you know, I, from my perspective, you know, making great money, you know, married, you know, trying to have a family. Right. At the time, my wife and I, you know, our son was not yet born. No real reason to risk it all. You know, and we really did, you know, spend all of our savings to get this company going. And for me, it was, you know, the fear of not doing it finally superseded, you know, the fear of regret at the end of my life, could I have done this? Could I put a dent in the universe in the industry that I really care about, that I grew up in? That that fear of, you know, dying with that regret finally superseded that massive fear of failure. You turn to your wife and you say, I'm going to sell frozen fish on the internet, frozen seafood right. on the internet. Yes. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like, <laughs> you know, yeah. at face value. Sounds kind of scary, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's terrifying when you compare it, the thing that was most surprising to me was that, you know, you hear all these stories of success retrospectively and people sort of, you know, it sounds like it was a foregone conclusion. I mean, there were several times in the history of Wild Alaska, you know, figuring out that fulfillment, the cold chain, you know, figuring out the warehousing solution right. where we could safely deliver the fish at scale to the entire country where, it was not a foregone conclusion. You know, it, 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 now it feels like magic. You know, this beautiful box of sustainable frozen seafood shows up on your doorstep, yep. you know, once once a month. But th there was a lot of times where I was questioned, did I make the right decision here? Uh, you know, and I just kept going back to this idea of trusting the fish. I would literally wake up in the morning and I would pull out a piece of beautiful red sockeye salmon from bristol bay alaska and i would eat it for breakfast because fish is not just for dinner no that's right you know? it's a three meal <laughs> a day I, opportunity <laughs> and it was brain food and i would say okay how am i going to figure out how to put this in a box and get it onto the doorstep and and there were many trials and tribulations along the way um there and i think entrepreneurship you know always hindsight 2020 and we have a selective bias you know we see sure. um the successes we don't see the failures but it really is quite terrifying and anybody that i think says that um it isn't <laughs> you know um is probably not being totally honest the other side of your question and it's not shouldn't be such a surprise but just the immense amount of gratitude i have for the wild alaskan company team members um you know the, the people that joined us along this journey that, that really believe in the mission that are also now trusting the fish and then the members are themselves, you know, the, the people that yeah, you know, sure. write back to my wife every week, hundreds of people responding to her. You know, when our son was born, we had not one but two baby blankets sent to us. You know, I mean, <laughs> that kind of love and outpouring and people that are really resonating with what we're doing. I, I can't I, I shouldn't say that it it was unexpected, but just the, the, the volume of the relationships that we formed over the years with our members is just. It, it really the gratitude that I have for it is 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 just un, 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 unmeasurable. Yeah, I can believe it. No, you can see it. And like I said, anyone who's been an entrepreneur, that it's a scary thing. But at some point, the satisfaction of knowing that you you got something to sustainability as a company uh, is such a rewarding feeling. And uh, you guys have done that on uh, several times over now. It's really amazing. I like uh, every so often to pivot towards health because obviously we're all busy. We're all under stress. Some of us eat bad food sometimes because we're working late. But fish is really an important part of a healthy diet. I grew up on Long Island Sound, so I'm on the East Coast fisheries at the time. But, you know, fish was a, a, almost a daily part of our diet. How important and what would you tell consumers about, you know, the importance of adding seafood to your diet? What, what are the upsides to it? 
Well, I can tell you, you know, I always, you know, uh, I think the most important thing is to say what I do, you know, not, you know, I'm not a doctor, right? Um, right. you know, I'm, I'm not a nutritionist, but I can tell you what I do. Um, I'm a pescatarian. I've been a pescatarian for about seven or eight years. So I don't actually eat land-based animal proteins other than dairy. Uh-huh. Um, right. But I do eat fish um, and I eat sustainable seafood from Alaska. Uh, I would rather smoke three packs of cigarettes a day than eat a farmed salmon. You know, with the, right. you know, farm salmon is actually, farm salmon is actually illegal in the state of Alaska right. because of the ecological implications. So again, all seafood is not created equal. You really have to trust your source. So that's super important. Um, you know, but again, the proof is in the pudding. If you, you know, do, do what I do, not what I say, what I personally do and what I feed my family, including my son, um, is sustainably sourced wild Alaskan seafood. My favorite is the sockeye salmon. It's yeah, that's my I favorite grew. too. That's definitely mine. <laughs> and and that's what I feed my kid. That's what I feed my family. Um, you know, in addition to all, all the other species that we offer from Alaska, but that is definitely my favorite. I mean, the health benefits of seafood. Um, you know, a quick Google search will will show you. Yeah. That's a really strong argument. Americans are under indexed um, in, uh, you know, in seafood consumption globally, you look at some of the, uh, healthiest, uh, you know, notably cultures of around the world and you look at their, you know, their relationship to the sea. Um, and you look at what America is doing, you know, not just the quantity of fish that we're eating in relation as a country in relationship to other protein sources, but the, the actual, uh, sources themselves, you know, um, and so for me, again, do what, you know, I'm going to tell you what I do, yeah. um, you know, rather than give advice. And what I do is I, I eat, I literally eat our own product. We have it multiple times a week. Um, and yeah, that is that sustainably sourced seafood from, from Alaska. All right. So I, I'm, I, I love recipes and I, I don't get to cook as often. Usually my wife bans me from the kitchen, but she's been gone for a couple of weeks uh, visiting her dad. And so I, uh, I tried an old recipe that my Irish aunt had or orange marmalade glaze on a sockeye salmon. It was killer. I loved it. I did it Sunday. You must have among all the recipes you guys uh, share with your, your members. Um, do you have a favorite, do you have a favorite recipe? This is funny. And I do, you know, I, again, coming from someone that grew up on a commercial fishing boat where what are we having for dinner, yep. lunch and breakfast? Well, it's <laughs> we gotta be fish. Full of fish. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, the thing is, a lot of people think that seafood is this fancy, you know, luxury protein that we have when we're trying to all eat healthy. And that that might be true. Yeah. You know, if you're on a diet, you want to order the fish, you know, at the restaurant. Um, but, you know, seafood is great, um, you know, for different meals. And also, it doesn't have to be super, you know, um, exclusive or, or special, you know, especially if you're eating every day. I mean, I, 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 I'm not afraid to admit it. Like my favorite thing to do on the boat, you know, catch a sockeye salmon, lay it up right there. Wow. Roll it up and have a, have a, uh, have a, a fish sandwich. Yeah, sure. You know, it, it, that's what we would always do on the boat. You know, we, you know, you got your burger buns, tomatoes, um, you know, and, and nothing special, but it's just so delicious, you know, as a substitute for what would normally be a different animal protein, um, you know, uh, and that's just what, you know, it's super quick. I, I always joke, you know, I'm not a great cook. Um, my wife is a phenomenal yeah, um, cook. Same here. I can't really cook anything except for seafood. And I can tell people, a lot of people, a lot of our members, the issue they have is they think they can't cook fish. I can tell you somebody that's not a great cook, Fish is the easiest thing in the world to cook. It really fast. is. The thing with wild salmon in particular, the one trick I'll tell everybody, um, if you're used to eating farm salmon, it's a lot fattier because those fish aren't allowed to swim. Right. They're kept in pens all day, so they get fat. A wild salmon is leaner. It's very robust. Um, you know, it has less fat, so it cooks faster. So people that order our box for the first time get the salmon. Oh, I didn't like it. It was too dry. Well, how long did you cook it for? Yeah, that's uh, the key. The normal amount that I cook salmon. Well, if you're not used to cooking wild salmon, you do not have to cook it for as long as you would cook, you know, a farm salmon. And most consumers have really no experience with cooking wild fish. And once you do, and once you nail it, which is not hard at all, 
um, you'll be blown away by the taste and the flavor. And again, super simple, um, you know, uh, put it on a, on a fish sandwich and you're good to go. Yeah, it's really true. And you, I'll tell you what, I, I, I've been eating fish for my whole life. And like I said, grew up in a place where we go fishing every weekend. Um, uh, the difference between wild caught fish and in store bought, um, farmed fish is day and night in terms of the flavor and the texture. It's just, uh, it, it is a remarkable difference. All right, I got one last question I wanted to ask you because I've I've seen this on the packages and on, on the thing, and I'm, I'm just curious when you came up with the motto "Fed by Family." Where what's that? What where did that come from? The truth, you know, yeah. uh, as I said, I call it a three generation overnight success. I mean, I'm standing on the the, the shoulders of my grandfather, may he rest in peace, and right. you know, my father who, who's in his seventies now. They laid, uh, you know, the groundwork. Um, so to speak, for this, um, uh, you know, they, they taught me, you know, out on the water, you know, everything that I know, I've lived and breathed it. It really is, you know, th- three generation overnight success. And now with my wife and my son, um, you know, my son is uh, not quite two years old. So this huh? year is going to be his first year out on my father's boat, not, oh. you know, to, to do a, a full season or, you know, fishing, just taking him out, getting him used to being on the water. Um, you know, doing some family trips and, you know, stuff, but, you know, I'm very much looking forward to passing this torch, um, you know, down to him as he continues to grow up and that's family, you know, this is, it's, it, we're feeding, um, we're bringing Alaska to, uh, you know, your family around the country, your dinner table around the country. And it's from our family, uh, uh to yours. Yeah, it really is remarkable. Well, listen, your family story is the quintessential American family entrepreneurial concerned about uh, sustainability and just the goodness in your community. Uh, you've created something that's very special. And you also created something else special for us, which I'm really grateful. You guys have done a special offer where, for us here at Just the News and John Solomon Reports. I just want to remind everybody real quickly, you, if you want to sign up and get involved, which you should absolutely do this, uh, you're going to get $15 off your first box of wild-caught seafood when you go to Waddle Oskin. Uh, company.com slash just news. I'm going to give that one more time because it's a great deal. 15 bucks off your first membership opportunity. It's wildalaskancompany.com slash just news. Go do it. It'll be here by the weekend. You'll be happy. Um, Aaron, I can't thank you enough. First for the partnership and all that we're doing together, but also for uh, inspiring us all with your, your family story and for creating such a great, not just, a, you didn't create just a great product. You created a great experience and a great community. And and for that, we're really grateful. Thank you so much. Just, I mean, overwhelmed with gratitude. Yeah. Listen, it's a, it's a great story. And, um, and you know, we, so many times we go, we do something and we don't really know the people behind it. And you really gave us a great peek inside your family and inside your company and also uh, inside your great philosophy of sustainability, which we all should, should embrace greatly. It's, um, I'm really grateful for the time and let's stay in touch, get you back on the show. I might need some uh, new recipes by the end of the summer. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, my wife is the one you really want to talk to there. You All know, right. Uh, Next time we're going to bring her on. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, <John. laughs> That's great, Aaron. Thanks again. And uh, best of luck. Have a great summer. You too. All right, folks, we're going to go to quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. All right, folks, that wraps her up for the weekend. Remember, this weekend, you're going to get an extra download, if you want, of a podcast we are going to put out for this weekend, the uh, an audio version, podcast version, of the TV special we did on Wednesday night, uh, Tuesday night, excuse me, on election integrity. It's important. Uh, great guest. A lot of facts. We're not, we're not giving you a spin. We're not giving you stuff. You're going to get an update from the amazing Jessica Anderson at Heritage Action on all the changes in the states that have already been made and ones that are upcoming. You're going to hear from Senator Ron Johnson on why the federalization of election bills failed on Capitol Hill, why they, they fell apart. And you're going to hear from two amazing people that have made a 
giant difference in the election integrity space. Uh, Bob Cheeley, the lawyer from Georgia, who uh, brought the lawsuit that resulted in the ballot audit in Fulton County, Atlanta, Georgia, and from uh, an amazing woman out in Wisconsin where I spent several years of my life and met my great wife. Uh, the woman's name is Sandy Juno. She's the former Brown County, Wisconsin election clerk, the county that includes Green Bay and the Green Bay Packers. Uh, she's going to tell you a, an unbelievably harrowing story about how Mark Zuckerberg's money influenced the race in Green Bay, including sidelining career election experts in favor of partisans. You're not going to want to miss that story. All right. I hope you have a great weekend. Listen to that special while you're mowing the lawn or having a drink on the back porch. Enjoy the weekend. God bless you. God bless this amazing country of America. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe.